At Baptist Health South Florida, it's our mission to care for you when you're injured or sick and help you stay healthy and fit. Welcome to the Baptist Health Talk podcast, where our respected experts bring you timely, practical health and wellness information to improve your family's quality of life. February is Heart Month, but despite wearing red and overall increased awareness over the years, heart disease is still the leading cause of death in the United States, according to public health officials. But the good news is you can do a lot to protect your heart and stay healthy. Understanding your risk factors for heart disease and how to live a heart-healthy lifestyle can reduce said risk and ultimately save your life. Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Jonathan Fialco, a preventive cardiologist and leader at Baptist Health. I recently had the pleasure of hosting Baptist Health's Resource Live, where I spoke with two experts from within Baptist Health family to talk about the importance of being aware of your heart health and what you can do to make it healthier. My guests were Dr. Patrick Ascarate, he's a preventive cardiologist at the Miami Cardiac and Vascular Institute's cardiology group, and Amy Kimberlane, who's a lead dietitian in the Miami Cardiac and Vascular Institute prevention program. Let's listen in. Patrick, let's kick it off with you. We know about the classic signs of a heart attack, chest pain, arm discomfort, shortness of breath, um, but two questions. The first is, are all heart attacks presenting that way, or are there other things one may present with? And talk a little bit of maybe either the silent symptoms or less recognized symptoms that might suggest a cardiac condition. Sure, John. I think it's very important to discuss that because patients who have the typical symptoms recognize them early and get the care they need early. But with the atypical symptoms, patients present later and they don't realize they're having a heart attack. So why that happens, it depends a lot about what part of the heart is affected and the type of patient that is experiencing it. There's some parts of the heart when they're affected, you actually don't have chest pain. You just have maybe nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain. And there's other types of heart attacks where you have no You just have jaw pain, you have arm pain, and shortness of breath. So recognizing that if you are having acute onset of these symptoms and you have risk factors for heart disease, to take it seriously and to have it checked out. Um, in terms of your question about silent symptoms, uh, that's a great question too, because some patients like diabetics may present without, they may have heart attacks and uh, experience them quote unquote silently or not have any symptoms. A few days after, the, after this event, they may have symptoms such as palpitations, shortness of breath, leg swelling, decreased urine output, and even some uh, confusion. So Certainly, if you're high risk for heart disease, be aware of these little changes because the heart can truly affect any part of the body. And I think that's the take home point. If you're not feeling right or something is not right, or even a loved one says, you know, are you okay? You don't look great <laughs> in a sense. Get checked out. Even call fire rescue if you're really overly concerned. Certainly, if you're having those symptoms, call yeah. fire rescue. The quicker someone is seen having a heart attack, the more likely we are to help them survive with minimal consequences. Correct. Downstream. We so, we love the heart, um, but I'd say trust your gut. <laughs> I like that comment. I got I got to remember that one. Um, Follow up question, which is, is sometimes not well thought of. We know that chest pain is one of the more common reasons people present to emergency rooms, usually because they're concerned it's a heart condition. What would be kind of symptoms that we're pretty much comfortable telling someone it's probably not a heart condition? Also great, and um, kind of stepping into the mind of a cardiologist, right? Like what doesn't worry us? So typically if someone's coming in and they say it's uh, chest pain when they move their arm around or when they push down on their chest, it's likely more musculoskeletal or some sort of strain in their chest wall. 
If it's more burning, that may be more reflux. And if it's more pain, that's worse when you take a deep breath, it may be more related to the lungs. You know, like I said, heart attacks can present in all types of ways, so we don't completely rule it out, but that makes us a lot less worried for it involving the heart. And the only thing that is duration, something that lasts a second or two would yes. also be less concerning. So again, I appreciate that yeah. answer. Uh, Amy, we, we, we know the nutrition and healthy eating is the key to preventing many, if not all, chronic diseases, um, including heart disease and heart issues. So what are the foods you want to avoid to give yourself a higher likelihood of avoiding cardiac con- conditions as you get older? And conversely, what are the foods we want to emphasize and we want to really um, build into our diet? Great question. And again, everything is individualized. But if we take that introspective look to say, what is it that I'm eating currently? What is the food that I'm ingesting, right? And how can that work to prevent against heart disease? It's really looking at inclusion of whole, whole foods. So fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, fish, poultry, and looking then to include less of the processed, ultra-processed meats, refined carbohydrates, and those foods and drinks that have added sugar, sodium, and that are found in a package with those items included. So my, my encouragement always is to look at your plate. How are you building that plate? And that's your first starting point for the meals throughout the day to be able to see what am I actually needing to do more of or less of with that shift. A quarter of the plate is coming from whole grains, so a quinoa, wild rice, or barley, a quarter of the plate coming from lean protein, and half of the plate coming from vegetables. I would tell patients a lot of times we have these portions kind of reversed and we eat disproportionately. So it's the quality of the food that we're eating along with the quantity. And that's the first starting point for people. Um, I know we utilize items like out of convenience, if it's an energy bar or that kind of quick granola bar, but some of those have added sugar. Can we start with just something more basic and really looking to include some nuts that have no salt added, no sugar added with a piece of fruit? And again, I understand convenience can be, you know, at play, but the idea here is, like I said, to begin to really reflect and say, what do I need to do more of or less of? I thought I was doing something healthy for myself and now I'm taking this look to see I'm really consuming a lot of added sugar. And that might be the first starting point for somebody to really make an improvement as it relates to health. Um, Amy, I'm going to throw something at you, which you may not agree with and maybe, would, but that won't be the first time we've had a conversation about that. But, you know, I'm thinking about what you're saying and everything you mentioned regarding what we should eat, if you will, and it's heart healthy and you know, good in general, you start off by saying it's it, it's most natural form. If you think about this, when food is marketed because of a health benefit, doesn't that kind of doesn't that kind of say to begin with, hey, what's going on here? It's got to be processed. There has to be some food industry that's building it and promoting it. You know, no one's promoting apples for heart health because the apple industry doesn't do that. Do you, do you ever look at that as well? You mentioned the granola bar, which you know, for certain healthy people might give a little energy, but if you're uh, developing unhealthy habits, yeah, it's got a lot of sugar. So I, I, would you say people should refrain from eating food because it's sold for a, a healthy benefit, but pick healthy foods based on what they're, what the inherent be- benefits of the foods are? I think you just tapped into the marketing and people want your business. And if they say it does that, then where's the science to help back it up within packaging? And that's another discussion for a whole other day yeah, that we can yeah. dive into in, in truth. But you know, you joked about apples not being marketed for heart health. They actually have a type of fiber that does help with heart health. There's just no money to be able to back and Well, that's what I mean. Market. We agree yeah. they are, but just, you know, who's going to promote it and market well, it? Well, but I you? think, again, if I was isolating one food, John, like, I don't know. Not that a bad, not a good one to pick. Okay. 
<laughs> but no, regardless, it's everybody's individualized. And I think that it's this pendulum of looking at where patients are at, because, you know, for me, it's like, what can somebody do? And you have to take into account the access availability and all of those things. And I think that we're moving upwards to be able to make improvements. What's the challenge when someone comes into my office? What's the one thing you can do to improve your health right now? And again, to your point, people think they're doing something healthy. But again, if I can at least make them aware that that granola bar had added sugar for, you know, food can be functional. But again, do they need that added sugar? Are they going for the run later? Or is it that they need to maybe shift and make a better choice selection to improve their health? Very well said. Patrick, um, let's debunk some myths. What about the myth that heart disease only happens to older people? Any truth to that? Um, You know, should younger people, should they and, and when and how should younger people be concerned about cardiac health? Right. I think first it's important to define also what is young these days because uh, <laughs> 18-year-olds, 30-year-olds, I mean, they say 50 is like the new 40 now, right? So in my mind, yeah, I think around maybe the age between like teens to like mid-30s, probably like quote-unquote young or specifically a type of population that may not be overly concerned with their heart health. And uh, well, it's true that younger patients are less likely to have heart conditions, a heart condition can happen in anyone. You know, there's certain people who are born with an abnormal heart condition that may not reveal itself until they're older. And there's also specific risk factors that can increase a young patient's risk for heart disease. Specifically, there are some patients with type 1 diabetes who their whole life, um, they've been suffering with this inflammation that may lead to a heart attack in their 30s. There's people with um, genetic types of high cholesterol which can have an increased risk of having a heart attack in their 20s or 30s as well, and sometimes even their teens. Other risk factors which um, would make a young person worry about a heart problem was if you have radiation to your chest from cancer, a recent pregnancy, and also even certain types of infections can affect the heart. So there's certainly many ways of which a young person's heart could be affected, Although it is incredibly rare and not very common, it is still possible. So they also need to be aware of their symptoms and um, seek out help if you're feeling anything, um, you know, different. Well, well, being on the other side of 60, I like to think that 60 is the new 40. 60 um, is the new 40. I, that's what I yeah. meant to say. Yeah, 60. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> but um, no, but, but, but again, that's, that's important. Um, and basically starting heart healthy habits at a young age or never deviating from heart healthy habits um, significantly impact one as we get older. Correct. Um, you know, we always say, you know, in your thirties, you're going to live forever. When you're 40, you start paying attention. When you're 50, it's why did I do that when I was 30? So, yep. you know, I think starting to, to pay attention to those heart healthy habits yep. really have profound benefit as you get older. Definitely. And then, and then Amy, following up on that, um, you know, again, very well articulated, the kind of foods you want to eat in general categories. You did mention it at the end of your, your comments. And I want to pick up on that. So if someone will say does not have an optimal diet, whatever that means, how would you approach them and say, let's start changing your diet? We can give a list to people and say, don't eat this and eat this. But, you know, to actually make those type of impactful changes is somewhat difficult. So how would you work with someone to give them tips to start improving their diet to make it more heart healthy? The first starting point, as I said, is really the reflection of their plate and what are they doing on a day-to-day basis. While I might not isolate any one meal, right, 
you're looking at the week at hand and on the day-to-day what people are doing and what they're taking in. If the frequency of meals eaten out is there, I may focus on sodium. If it's now that you're not having any vegetables, we need to find a way to work vegetables in. So as I said, quite individualized to see what a patient's doing. And then from there, it's like this checkoff. Are you doing nine to 13 servings of fruits and vegetables? I don't know that many people are. So then let's talk about why we need to include them. Is it that you don't like the way they taste? You know, maybe you've had a bad experience with a vegetable, not here to ask people to eat something they don't like. But then it's this discussion of we need every color every day. Every color has a different vitamin, mineral and antioxidant. So how am I going to work those in? And I think that's a nice starting point. You mentioned teaching at a young age. Make it fun for kids. Instead of saying eat your vegetables, it's like, what color are we missing today? How can we work that in? And I think it starts to become more of something enjoyable versus again a battle at the at the dinner table so sometimes vegetables may be my first starting point then i'm looking for fiber i don't know that we talk about fiber enough and while people may associate fiber with going to the bathroom jokes aside it helps in so many other chronic health conditions and again that means where are you getting fiber from it comes from plants i need somebody to do those higher quality carbs like a whole grain quinoa barley couscous but in a portion controlled, right? So the quantity as well, adding on the vegetables, adding on nuts and seeds, and then beans are another really great source. So that's another point. Another one is I'm looking for omega-3 fatty acids. Maybe somebody can start to include seafood twice a week. If you're not doing it from something like a salmon, a trout, or a herring, maybe then ultimately they need to start doing some walnuts or some flaxseed from a plant source. Starting to layer in different ways that I can incorporate some of what we're describing as heart-healthy foods. And then the other two talking points, I don't think that, again, we're starting to talk more now, but it's added sugar and sodium. So within added sugar, I think the obvious is sugar, honey, maple syrup, agave. We know that that's added sugar. But as I mentioned earlier, can I now flip a label over? It's added on a label and I can start to see that yogurt I was eating, I thought I was doing healthy, now is almost like a dessert with as much added sugar as it has. So, you know, the flip discussion is what can you eat instead? Plain yogurt, throw your own fruit in, make it again that better for you version. So those small steps is that identification. And again, within added sugar, I I think people would be surprised how much they're taking in. So first, find your sources. Second, know how much you're consuming and then aim to cut back. For women and children, it's just six teaspoons per day of added sugar and minutes nine teaspoons. An equivalence is one teaspoon is four grams. So whether you're adding it into food when you drink a tea, right? It's this idea of knowing how much you're taking in. You have to know both versions. So whether it's the teaspoon or now you're looking at packages, you know, again, I had a patient in the other day and claiming a certain brand that will remain nameless was healthy, had almost a teaspoon of sugar in a slice of bread. And I think that that's now the talking point of saying, can we find a different product that you can use? I'm not asking everybody to make homemade bread, (laughs) but maybe they can find something different to begin to decrease the amount that we're taking in. Uh, And again, you, you touched on a lot of good points, obviously the vegetables, fiber, um, avoiding sugars. Um, but I think it's like you said, know, know your food choices, pick the right choices, transition, look at the labels. And they said the hidden sugars, things that you wouldn't think of having sugar and sweet. And you look at it like, oh my God, and that's only going to increase inflammation and potential cardiac um, risk factors. So again, great information. Um, and you know, that's why, uh, that's why we look for you as that resource. Um, Patrick, now going back again from the the physician standpoint, um, you touched on a couple of things regarding, let's say, um, genetic abnormalities, familial hypercholesterolemia, et cetera. So, 
you know, what is what is the role of genetics in the risk of cardiovascular problems? And specifically, you know, we know we don't look at any one item and say you're gonna have a heart attack. You can't tell someone to have high cholesterol. We look at it globally. Do you smoke? How old you are? What is the family history component we will look at? Um, and in particular, why, like my 90-year-old grandmother had a heart attack that does not necessarily impose a risk, you know, to me. Yeah, um, so relevant because this came up in clinic last week with a daughter who was bringing her father in for high blood pressure. And, you know, towards the end, she looked at me and she's like, my mom has high blood pressure, my dad has high blood pressure. Does that mean that I'm going to have high blood pressure? And it's the same exact question. It's great. Uh, I think it's not... Uh, we are not destined to follow our genetics per se. Like our um, genetics may predispose us and increase our risk to certain diseases, such as high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, even obesity. But um, in some cases, we can try to reduce that risk with lifestyle changes, such as increasing how much we're exercising and dietary changes. I'm sure Amy can talk to you a lot about that as well. But when patients come in, I don't want them to feel discouraged when um, they hear about their significant family history. I want them to feel encouraged and empowered that they have the ability to reduce their risk of heart disease, even if they end up getting what their family had, even if they inherit high cholesterol or diabetes. Medications are so good these days that there are ways to reduce bad outcomes from these things. So while Family history is important. It's not the end-all be-all. And what's more important is the individual patient's um, willingness to get better and prevent disease in the future. You know, like, we, like, we like to say um, genetics loads the gun, but lifestyle pulls the trigger. Ooh, so that's a good one. You have some, even if you say, I can give you some, some, some that's little, a good one. Uh, okay, all right. Well. <laughs> um, but obviously, if you have a genetic risk, that's not an absolute. They pay extra attention to stay healthier um, uh, to decrease the component of that. Amy, um, any vitamins or supplements that can improve one's heart health? So the short answer is no. Um, the one possible exception may be omega-3 fatty acids, which we were discussing within kind of seafood or a plant-based version. So I would take an assessment to see if a patient's consuming those foods first, but that would be maybe the only one. The caveat to supplements is they're not regulated by the FDA. And so knowing what's actually in them versus what we're consuming, I would go from a food first you know, avenue versus, again, just immediately taking something. Again, with those health benefits and their claims, they're not being, there's no there's no way that they can improve it and they're not being asked to do so. So again, food first, speak with a dietitian. And and similarly, I can't tell you how many times we see people in our clinics with, you know, smoking, significantly overweight, don't exercise and say, but I'm going to take this supplement and I'll be okay, right? And it's, you know, not compared to other opportunities you may have to become healthier. And then Patrick- I mean, just to, just to, sorry to tag on to that, the biggest conversation I've had this last week, and this is my question I ask to patients all the time is what is in your toolbox for stress management? You know, and again, we may think of it as in the nutrition realm, but again, that can contribute to heart disease as well. So, you know, mm-hmm. how are you managing your stress? Life is stressful, but again, there's has to be different tools to help us move through the stress. Yep. And then Patrick, uh, last question, um, is caffeine good or bad for my heart? <laughs> that's an, it, that's a long question. Essentially, there's um, some research that has shown it's beneficial and then others shown that it's not. But what we can most definitely say is that one to two cups is not harmful. Specifically, I think what people most worry about is the risk of a heart attack or arrhythmias. And they've done so much research on this. And what they found is it hasn't 
um, it has not increased your risk of arrhythmias. I mean, you'd have to drink a lot of caffeine to start feeling a lot of palpitations or, um, you know, abnormal heart rhythms. And what we do know in research is that people who drink coffee do have a longer um, mortality. Uh, they have an improved mortality, right? But these research, they're always flawed because it's always by association and they're not the best studies. So what I tell patients is that everything in moderation, right? One to two cups of coffee is fine. Try not to exceed your daily limit of caffeine. And even if you have a history of heart failure, heart attacks, it's okay to have some caffeine. It's not particularly harmful. But I don't know if you have any more specific thoughts on that. I think it's right. I mean, in one's lifestyle, I don't think it's going to make a difference. A heavy, heavy caffeine. How much added sugar? Yeah, so I was going to say what they put in the caffeine can make what the coffee can make a difference. Yeah, Obviously, you don't want to point too. Teas. Could affect sleep patterns and whatnot. But I don't think anyone, I don't think anyone's lifestyle is going to live longer or shorter with or without caffeine in the scheme of things. Correct. So, and I don't think it would increase your risk of a heart attack unless you're drinking again like mounds of caffeine every day. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Anyway, guys, I mean, there's so much we can we can touch on um, that you guys already mentioned, as well as other stuff. To our listeners, if you like what you've heard on this or any of our other podcasts, please be sure to tell a friend or a family member about us. And if you have a comment or a suggestion for a future topic, please email us at baptisthealthtalk at baptisthealth.net. That's baptisthealthtalk at baptisthealth.net. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Find additional valuable health and wellness information on our resource blog at baptisthealth.net slash news. And be sure to interact with us on our social media channels for live and upcoming events. This podcast is brought to you by Baptist Health South Florida, healthcare that cares.